Benton Waters, England, 1956. Radar operators at multiple Air Force bases track objects traveling over 4,000 miles an hour. These objects are seen by people on the ground and in the air. What was witnessed that night? Let's find out in this week's episode, The Lake and Hearth Benton Waters UFO Incident. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. But first, it's time for Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed. This is the Mind Boggle of the Week. The Alcubierre Drive. In 1994, theoretical physicist Dr. Miguel Alcubierre proposed an engine that could travel faster than the speed of light. Einstein's theory of relativity puts a hard limit on space travel. The faster something goes, the more energy it needs to accelerate. Actually going the speed of light requires an infinite amount of energy. If it's impossible to go as fast as light, even faster should be impossible too. That is, unless a very clever scientist figures out how it can be done. Dr. Alcubierre really thought outside the box on this one. Instead of making bigger rockets to fight the laws of physics, we can achieve faster than light speed travel by bending space-time around a ship, creating a warp bubble. The ship would stay in one place while the universe moved around it. It sounds like something from a TV show, but the science checks out. The problem is, creating a warp bubble requires exotic matter with a negative energy density. We aren't sure if this type of matter can exist in our universe. Dr. Alcubierre suggested the Casimir vacuum between parallel plates could be used as a negative energy, but you'll have to ask him about it because I have no idea what that is. Will a scientific breakthrough soon allow travel between the stars? Is it possible that a more advanced civilization has discovered how to cheat the rules of the universe? What would it be like to travel faster than the speed of light without actually doing so? It boggles the mind. And now it's time for the show. All right. So the Bent Waters UFO incident, it's a pretty cool incident. There's a lot of different data points involved with it. There's a lot of different uh, testimonies from people to draw off of. I think it's a very interesting story. It's, it's one that more people should hear about. So I think it's important to state the um, political scenery that was around in 1956, especially uh, w- with England. Um, there, there was a lot of different things that they were involved in. Um, they were the first nation to install ground radar across uh, an entire section of the country. So that they have been involved in radar since you know the beginning of ground radar, at least. They're, they know what they're doing. They know what they're looking at. They've had uh, experience for, for many years. But 1956, you know, this was at the beginning of the Cold War, towards the beginning, but it's still very, very... Uh, high tensions in that area because that some of those bases were used for, you know, different surveillance programs and stuff by the United States and by, by England. I think it's important to note that if anything in those areas uh, of those air force bases uh, was noticed by radar and, and thought to have been as odd 
they they most certainly would have scrambled airplanes to check it out at the very least. So let let's start uh, with the first. The first sighting was at about nine o'clock at the Royal Air Force Base at Bentwaters in England, in uh, Suffolk, England. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they they noticed was a group of slow radar targets. They they saw them um, on a slow course to the northeast. They sent a jet mm-hmm. out to to investigate what these targets were, but it had to return to base because it accidentally lost its external fuel tanks. So the jet mm-hmm. was not a- able to actually go out and investigate what these slow moving targets were. The- there were about a dozen or more targets and in front of them, there were three targets in a triangular formation and uh, they were moving 80 to 125 miles an hour. And that's an int- it's an interesting speed because there are not really aircraft don't really fly at that speed. And at the same mm-hmm. time, if you look at like the wind data and the, it couldn't have been a bunch of balloons or something because balloons wouldn't have been going at that speed at that altitude either. So they, they weren't really quite sure what it was. So at nine 30, uh, there were the radar, radar operators, um, at the, uh, was it the uh, Bentwaters base? I believe was the, the the one that happened at nine thirty. Yeah, it's still it's still right. at Bentwaters. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so at nine thirty, uh, there were radar operators at uh, Bentwaters that uh, tracked a target that looked uh, what they claimed it looked normal. Uh, a normal aircraft return is the the term that I read as far as what they were seeing on the radar screens, mm-hmm. and it was approach, approaching the base from the sea, and um, the speed that the, the they they mentioned here it was just a- astronomical. It was several th- several thousand miles per hour, which at that point or and at this point at current time, there's no aircraft that I know of that can go that fast. Yeah, right? I actually spent quite a long a lot. Most of my research time actually was spent trying to find any sort of craft we had that could travel at these speeds at these altitudes. So we have like mm-hmm. the. We know about the SR-71 that can go, you know, over Mach 3, but it can't do that at ground level. It has to go so far in the atmosphere that it's basically in space to travel that fast because there's so much air friction. And even that high up, there's so much air friction that it causes the skin to basically glow red. There's so much, you know, Mm -hmm. that's really, really fast for something to be traveling. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what was it supposed to be between? Was that the one that was between two thousand and four thousand miles an hour? That that one, uh, I think, it was over four thousand miles an hour. Okay, yeah, which yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. You know, um, the, those slow moving targets are also important to note too. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but those are the ones that they um, scrambled planes planes to or jets, the the Venom uh, jets. Yeah, the, trainers were they or. They they scrambled um, the the one that couldn't make it, but they also scrambled another one to go look at it. But they um, mm-hmm. they they didn't scramble the that one until uh, at least as far as from what I have until about nine thirty. They sent a pilot from the five hundred and twelfth squad to look for the targets, and he went mm-hmm. over. He didn't see anything. So th- they sent one jet that couldn't make it because of the, the fuel tanks. Again, 
But the second mm-hmm. jet went over there. They didn't see anything. Um, they reported a bright amber star-like object low on the horizon. But um, it, this is generally, most people agree that that was probably Mars. By the way, it, it didn't... It didn't do anything weird. It didn't move around or anything. It was just a, a bright mm-hmm. amber light. And the way the pilot described it, it was it was almost certainly Mars. And he probably mm-hmm. reported it that because they sent him to look for something, and that's the only thing he saw, so he reported it. So that's what he reported? Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So when the, the first uh, set of airplanes, the, the first one that had gone out, lost its fuel tank, had come back, and they scrambled up two more – when those guys went up, uh, those ones, uh, those pilots didn't see, they didn't have any, any visual contact at that point, right? Yeah. But uh, this whole time, there's, they still have the cluster of targets on the radar, which is... Mm-hmm. And the slow-moving ones, right? Yeah, the slow, which is kind of weird that they have this these radar returns, but the pilots can't actually find it, even though they're directed to where, you know, where it is. Mm-hmm. So the target cluster traveled slowly to about 40 miles northeast of Bentwaters. Um, then the individual targets converged into a single point that was, it was a radar return that was much larger than any aircraft that we ever had, even to this day. Mm-hmm. There, We don't have an aircraft. If It was several times the size of like a, a bomber, like a, I forget which one, but... Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think we should note real quick that um, th- there was a meteor shower that lasted from the 11th to the 13th, which is one thing that people often bring up as an explanation for these observations that people were making. But as people will find out, the, the way that these blips or, or registrations, whatever they're called on the radar, the way that they're acting would have, wouldn't have nothing to do with how a meteorite acts. I mean, a meteor is going to be going in a straight line, right? And it's not going to be going parallel to the ground. Yeah. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. We can, uh, if you look at the actual data, you can pretty much completely rule out meteors as a possibility because for, yeah, like you're saying, first of all, meteors don't travel parallel to the ground. Second of all, Mm -hmm. the, the meteors that we're talking about, I believe were the Perseid meteor shower and they come from a very specific direction in the sky. And that's not the direction that these radar targets were traveling. And Mm -hmm. another point is that meteors travel very, very fast, like 200,000 miles an hour, like really fast. Yes. And that's why, that's why they burn up in the atmosphere almost immediately. They very, Mm, because of friction. Yeah. They almost never reach the ground. And if they did reach the ground, if they were big enough to reach the ground, they would leave a very large crater, (laughs) you know? And well, oh yeah, and they also don't group up and become one object on the radar screens either. Right. Yeah. Or or do any of the other strange uh, things that we're going to describe in a little bit here. So the the next event that took place, from what I understand, was at at twenty two fifty five. Was that correct? Yeah. But wait. The, so the the slow targets. I, I forgot to mention the slow targets. So after they converged into that large point, it was actually stationary mm-hmm. on the radar for about ten minutes. Oh, that's right. Okay. Before it started to move again to the northeast, and then it paused for five more minutes, and then after that, it left it left the radar scope entirely, and then they they lost it off of the scope. But mm-hmm. it, it, you know, again, like a meteor is not going to do that. It's not going to start and stop. It's just going to burn up or hit the ground. Yeah, n- nothing about what they were observing would 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 say that it was a meteor at all. Yeah, for sure, by the way it's behaving. 
So the next time uh, that they had a um, an observation on their radar was at, at 10.55, right? And that was another fast-moving um, object that was approaching bent, uh, bent waters from the east. And that speed was, that's right, that's the speed that was between 2,000 and 4,000 miles an hour. Yeah. Oh, I th- As he observed it. Or, I don't know if we said, but um, geographically, if you if you can picture the island of England, what we're talking about are bases on the southeast part of the island. So you have mm-hmm. you have like the English Channel, I think, right there. You have the so you have like the island, then some water, and then you have Europe. So these yeah. these targets are coming from the area that's water between England and Europe on the south side of yeah. England. They're they're coming from a direction that would give them a, a good cause for concern. All right, so at 10.55, there was a target that was detected approaching bent waters from the east. And the speeds that it was traveling was around, well, between 2,000 and 4,000 miles an hour. And that's a, it's another pretty, you know, obvious thing. If you see something traveling that fast on a radar screen, it's going to catch your attention, right? Yeah, and the really interesting thing about this particular one is that people in the tower saw a bright streak of light flying overhead. So not, mm-hmm. not all of these radar targets had visual witnesses, but this one, the people in the tower saw it flying overhead. And at the same time that they saw it flying overhead, somebody in an airplane flying at about 4,000 feet over, over the air force base also saw it flying underneath of them. So we have a definite visual sighting from the ground and the air and we can confirm that it was at a very low altitude. It was f- because the people in the airplane saw it flying underneath of them. And if mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with aviation terms, when you're flying on a jumbo jet, let's say you're flying from Los Angeles to New York or wherever you're going, they tend to cruise at about, let's say, 30,000 to 50,000 feet. So if you're flying at like 4,000 feet or lower than 4,000 feet, that's a very low elevation to be flying at. That's not very high up at all. If you saw a plane flying that low, you would think to yourself that this plane is flying unusually low. So at this point, at this point in the evening, the Royal Air, Fa- Royal Air Force Base at Le- Lakenhurth gets a call from Bentwaters from their radar unit asking if they saw any targets traveling over 4,000 miles an hour because the targets were actually headed when they passed over bent waters over their radar area, they were headed towards the Lake and Heath base. Mm-hmm. So they called them up and asked that them. That base is about 40 miles away to the Northwest, correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's really close. So they called them up and they're asking them if you saw it, cause they would have seen it really, you know, going 4,000 miles an hour, they would have seen it pretty quickly. So they called them up to mm-hmm. see if, they had seen it. Um, so that there were reports that the target had passed directly over uh, Skullthorpe Air Force Base that was actually manned by um, the United States Air Force. That was a station. Um, their tower had seen the object, but Lake and Heath had not. And the, the Skullthorpe reported uh, that they had seen like a blurry light, which is pretty much exactly what they reported at Bentwaters. Mm-hmm. And um, at the Skullthorpe base, a C-47 that was flying over that base at about 5,000 feet said that they saw it fly below them. 
So, so uh, Lake and Heath report reported stationary targets on their radar screen, and they had sent up a couple different uh, jets to intercept. Is that correct? Yeah. At first, they didn't see anything on the radar scopes, but then they saw oh, okay. a stationary target, and they actually had two different radars that saw the target. Well, I was going to say I think it's important um, to to note that. They were using different types of radar. There, there were multiple different frequencies that they were uh, using with the radar. So, because a lot of people talk about, you know, how how it could have been just a, a glitch in the system. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. A, a, a glitch in the matrix. But it's very important for people to know that there was multiple different types of radar systems that were being implemented at that time. So, it wasn't something that was just like the same system had a glitch throughout the whole thing. It wasn't the same system. You know? Yeah, the target was still at first. It didn't move around, but then. It started to move around the area at high speeds in a rectilinear pattern. It would abruptly start and stop. So it wouldn't accelerate and it wouldn't decelerate. It would just move and then not move. Observers Mm -hmm. in the area um, on the base saw round white lights that matched the radar targets. The people at the base set up a conference call with various higher-ups, like the muckety-mucks, and they decided to launch an intercept. They sent two jets from the Royal Air Force to go investigate the area. It remained stationary while they were approaching it. When they were within half a mile from the target, one of the pilots said, Roger, Lake and Heath, I've got my guns locked on them. He paused... And then he said, where did he go? Do you still have him? The tower reported Mm -hmm. that the target had gone behind the jet. The jet had only forward radar, so he didn't see it at this point. It was, at this point, it was Mm -hmm. pretty much invisible to the jet. And it had disappeared from his radar within a split second. Yeah, it it was there and then it wasn't. It it didn't, Mm -hmm. it's not like it was moving like a normal jet would move or a normal aircraft would move. It was there and then it just disappeared. So the the tower reported that the target had gone behind the jet and it was sticking right behind him. So the the jet uh, climbed, dove, it moved every possible maneuver he could think of to try to shake the thing off of his tail. But no matter what he did, it always stayed right behind him. After about 10 minutes, the jet ran out of fuel or ran really low on fuel, so he had to return to base. The UFO followed the jet for a short distance, but then it stopped and remained stationary once again. The second jet that was scrambled to go investigate this experienced a malfunction and was not able to intercept the target, so they had to return to base. So only one jet was able to go, unfortunately, because if there's two jets there, then maybe the second one would have been able to observe the object behind them, but unfortunately that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they could have fell back and at least try to get on their tail. Yeah. yeah that's it's such a weird situation because um, a lot of the excuses that you hear, like, you know, how some people say, oh, they're, they were observing Mars or they're observing meteors that were coming in. And no, no, none of those things are going to act like this. Yeah. Well, something was up there. You know what I mean? So, something was, was there that they were observing, they were reacting to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, nothing. It's just. It, Ball lightning doesn't do this. Meteors don't do this. Radar mirages mm-hmm. don't do this. Nothing does this. It's just so weird. Yeah, there's well, there's nothing that I know of personally that does this. Something, you know, obviously what we're theorizing, what it is, is potential aliens or UFOs, whatever the UFO may be, whether it's 
you know, technology that some, one of our governments had, you know, that, I mean, it's 1956, so uh, I, I have trouble believing that, right? I mean, yeah. World War II had just happened, like we were talking about. And so there was a lot of uh, technology with aviation that was constantly being, you know, on parade, I guess you'd say. Right. Because they were, they were showing off their prowess, you know, just like the Navy and Navy battleships, uh, aircraft carriers. Anytime a, a big new aircraft carrier, you know, was built, they would parade it around. I mean, obviously something like that isn't the type of, you know, uh, craft that you can hide anyways, right? But, you know, air, aircraft are going to be a little bit different because there's more secretive uh, projects in that realm, you know? Yeah, but I always think, like, if, hypothetically speaking, if the Russians had the kind of technology that could do something like this, then they wouldn't mm. have lost the Cold War, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. If they had, for instance, maybe uh, obtained a, a alien spacecraft that they learned how to fly, you know what I mean? Like, well, if if you're if you subscribe to you know stuff that like, for instance, Bob Lazar talks about, that could be a situation, right? Yeah, but I digress. So there, there's there's an excerpt from from a declassified document. This document was um, classified as secret. It's mm -hmm. uh, BOI-485, and th this is a, a quote from that document that describes the, the tail chase incident. Flight path was straight but jerky with objects stopping instantly and then continuing. Maneuvers were of the same pattern except one object was observed to lock on to the fighter scrambled by RAF and followed all maneuvers of the jet fighter aircraft. And the reason that's interesting is because this is an official classified document. So we know that th this isn't just some anecdote by a pilot that claims something happened to them 50 years ago so they can try to sell a book. This is an actual... Yeah, they're not trying to make some, some wild claim to get attention. Yeah. This is an actual document that they, that they wrote. They classified it because they didn't want anybody to see it. And then it was much later mm -hmm. declassified. Well, and it's 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 a, a bit unfortunate too because as far as on the British side of things, um, when it concerns documents, from what I understand, they they got rid of pretty much every document relating to this by by 1969, I think, because 1969 is when this case uh, became public at first. Is, is that correct? Um, I don't remember when it first became public, but I do I do remember seeing that they did destroy many. Not I don't think they destroyed all the documents. Because if they did, we wouldn't have any. But they destroyed mm. most of the documents that were about this particular incident. Okay, that's what it was then. But just imagine, it's, it's, I'm sure there's plenty of situations that, that share this, you know. But what 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 we could have found out if uh, only we had those documents. Yeah. Know, the the more complete story, because something like this, there's so many. Like we were saying before, there's there's so many different data points. It can be a little tough to to create a, a full story in your head as far as exactly what happened and and what happened while it was everything else because like, like like you said there's multiple bases that were reacting to the same radar blips at the same time you know what I mean so if we could get like you, you know a full story from the whole uh, area that would be that'd be awesome yeah and what did the general and the general in charge or whoever was in charge who had the whole picture what was it like what were they seeing you know. I, mm -hmm. I imagine they were probably pretty frightened that we had these targets that we could not intercept and we, we could not <laughs> track, playing basically. With us. 
that yeah yeah that you know you launch it well and, and like we said like we said before they were reacting to something yeah something worth reacting to but that's the thing they could only in this situation they could only react they couldn't do anything if this had been some sort of mm-hmm. aircraft that had weapons on it they would have been completely at its mercy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah if they if that whatever that was if they wanted if it had ill intent uh, there's nothing they could do to stop it from doing what it wants to do that's got to be yeah. a pretty helpless feeling especially if you're you know someone that's in charge of a uh, safety on that level you know what i mean or security mm-hmm. yeah there so there there were reports that a senior officer from the air ministry interviewed people uh, that interviewed witnesses that saw things at, at the different bases and collected reports from them. And he mm-hmm. also told the people not to discuss the incident. But of course, these reports are not available, unfortunately. But witnesses did claim that a higher up interviewed them. Mm-hmm. So that, that despite what they always say, they say, oh, this is nothing. We're not interested, whatever. According to many witnesses, they actually were very interested in what happened, the people who were higher up. Yeah, they, they had something that they were concerned about. Yeah, you don't put resources like that, especially if it's, uh, yeah, I mean, somebody, if they, they have better things to spend their time on, right? Yeah. And looking into this type of thing if they don't have the perspective that it's real. Yeah. Right. So they definitely, they have some kind of investment in the, in that investigation. So I know that there were um, civilians that had uh, claimed that they witnessed uh, some of these events, right? Yeah. So there was a newspaper article in 1978, they published a newspaper article that talked about the event. And in response to that, a civilian witness came forward and I, I wrote down his, his quote because his his description, I thought, was just completely fascinating. So he said, I was a witness with others who wished to remain anonymous to the Lake and Heath flap of 1956. I have never seen such a panic. From the Prick Willow Road, Eli, we could see searchlights sweeping the sky in every direction. We saw a bright white star-like speeding... Uh, we saw a bright white star-like light speeding low across the fin straight towards us when the light reached us it stopped dead it did not slow down it just stopped the light went out then a bright flash of light and it shot off on the exact course from which it came as if on a slack string that's it's a pretty powerful statement if you have the imagination to recreate what he's talking about yeah if i would have experienced something like that i would be I'd be, I don't know what, I don't know what the hell I would think. You know, it's, it's something that doesn't, it just defies logic in every way. It's something that should never happen, you know, and as you're watching it, you're going to be just dumbfounded. I I, I would be, I I would think, you know. But the the really interesting thing is, is that, so this is in 1978 and this is before we have a lot of the, the documents and witness statements that support, you know, what, what happened, but what he's describing Mm -hmm is pretty much exactly what they're reporting on some of these radar returns. Like it's that it's starting and stopping with that acceleration that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's moving in like the, these rectangle patterns and this kind of stuff. So he, he has a little bit more to a statement about 10 minutes later, we sat on a wall in new Barnes Avenue opposite the phone box. We looked up and saw almost above us 
three amber glowing objects, quite low, but enveloped in a cloud, although the night was clear. After a few minutes, the objects began to revolve in a clockwise direction, slowly at first, then much faster, and the objects were swapping places with each other at great speed, and it went straight up and was gone. Now, hmm. this one is, it doesn't seem necessarily like it matches any of the radar returns, but on the other hand, if you think about how some of these seem to just sort of disappear out of nowhere, if they go straight up at a great speed, well, up is a good way to disappear, right? Yeah, that's a good point. And also, if they were, if they had came together and started revolving, I'm not sure if that would show up, especially if they're very close together. That wouldn't show up necessarily as three objects revolving together on, on a radar screen. It might be where, you know, they, they observed multiple objects coming together and making one object return yeah, no, on that, the screen, you know? That's, yeah, back then I don't think the, the radars had the resolution, so they would have definitely appeared as as uh, just one object. So the, this mm-hmm. this witness has, um, he talks about it again, in a, a different way. So he has, he has a second quote that's a little bit different. It seems like um, it's maybe the, when he was quoted originally in the newspaper, it was sort of like they condensed what he said. He later, he gave another statement that was a, a little more fleshed out. And what he said was that the lights were hovering over a road only 30 yards away and they were about 50 feet off the ground, and he thought that they were part of the same object. So mm-hmm. they they seemed to generate the, the cloud. Remember how he said that they were surrounded by a cloud or a mist? But yeah. he said that it seemed like the object was generating that mist, and it looked like it was folding in on itself, and it was completely silent. Huh. When I read this... Oh, des- very sci-fi. Yeah, when I read this description, I'm just like, what the heck, man? Like, it... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's that's quite a scene that he's describing. <laughs> yeah, like, and I can't help but imagine that. So sometimes I I hear about things or read about about things that are from another dimension or something that exists in four spatial dimensions that's visiting our dimensions. Mm-hmm. And if that was the case, if there's a four dimensional object existing in our three dimensions, we would probably just see a sphere. Or we would only see part of that object. We would not be able to see the entire object. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this description remind it makes me think of a four-dimensional object that's that's in our world observing us somehow. If that, I don't know if that makes any well, sense. Well, it, it does. And but there's also one thing that um, I, recently I remember hearing on a documentary some guy describe his theories about what it would look like. Um, if you were on the ground observing an uh, object that was running off of like um, a gravity warp type drive, uh-huh. I'm not going to be able to explain this type of thing to you, nor do I really understand it. But from what I've heard described, if you have a vehicle that's warping, you know, space and time and, and using like create like uh, creating its own gravity, uh-huh. um, you, if you were to be physically observing it with your eyes, it may not you may not even be able to see it at all because it's warping everything around itself and it's kind of like using, you know, um, how, to, how was it described? It's creating its own slide um, with this, you know, in space and time by using gravity yeah. and kind of following, following a gravity distortion is, is, is kind of, I, like I said, I, I don't understand. That's a lot of freaking stuff to, to try to get a grasp of, but I, I think I kind of get what they're, they're saying because uh-huh. 
it's like the it's like the idea of like you know if you have a black hole um well maybe that wouldn't actually well, compare at all never mind i think edit, edit that out <laughs> <laughs> i was about to make an analogy that as i was making it uh, it yeah it, that didn't make sense at all never mind i think <laughs> i think one way of thinking about it is it, it's sort of like if you have um an area of high pressure and low pressure so mm-hmm. w- for example the way in the way an airplane flies is that the wing has a certain shape and when air moves over the wing, the pressure above the wing is lower than the pressure below the wing. So because the pressure Mm -hmm. below the wing is higher, this is what causes lift. That's how airplane wings work. That's how propellers work. That's how even the blades and jet engines work is they create Uh a pressure differential. So one side has more pressure than the other. But Mm -hmm. so I think what basically you're talking about manipulating space time so that instead of the object moving through space time or just through space, you manipulate space to move around the object instead. Kind of like Mm -hmm. how an airplane manipulates air pressure so that it creates lift underneath of the wing. If Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah, I think that's a much better, much better analogy than what I had in mind. I don't know. (laughs) Now now that I said it, I'm not sure that it makes any sense, but (laughs) it, it sounded good in my head. It makes more sense. (laughs) You know, it made, it made made much more sense than what I was about to say. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't say it now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. Then uh, I don't have to edit it out. (laughs) Oh, okay then. Damn it. All right. (laughs) So, uh, moving on. So I think it's important to note and to talk a little bit about the area that this happened in has quite a history of these type of events. One of the more famous UFO sightings that happened in England actually happened in 1980 within this area. And it also involved Air Force personnel, I believe, right? Uh, Yeah. Also, um, Air Force personnel from the United States specifically. And this this Mm. is the... uh, the famous Britain's Roswell, a.k.a. Rendlesham mm-hmm. Forest event, which is, uh, man, that one's a real quagmire. <laughs> yeah, that one's an interesting case. That's for damn sure. Yeah. I think it's one that we will, we'll probably touch on eventually. Yeah. It's, it's interesting enough, I think. Well, the, the interesting thing about that case, I don't know if you've looked into that one, but there's an actual tape recording where um, the um, – Deputy base commander, Colonel Halt, was Mm -hmm. chasing through the forest on foot trying to find this UFO, and he had a tape recorder with him taping what he was saying during the incident. So he's going through, you know, saying, oh, my God, look at this. It's so weird, describing what he saw and all this other stuff. But it gets kind of weird because when you listen to these recordings, you can hear that – so he recorded it on one of these little handheld – tape recorder things with like those little tiny tapes, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the terminology mm-hmm. is, but you can hear that somebody has edited this tape in a really crude fashion, basically just doing it in a room using another tape recorder because you can like hear them talking and stuff. So <laughs> hmm. what did they edit out? You know, it, it, yeah, it's, that's a big red flag. Yeah. So the Rendlesham incident is just, it's it's a big rabbit hole. There's just so much stuff, and we're probably gonna have to do several episodes on that one. But I will say for the record 
that the binary code is complete and utter nonsense and has been thoroughly debunked. So if anybody is familiar with Rindlesham or they're going to look into it, you can pretty much just ignore the binary code stuff. I don't, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about there, AG and ETA? No, I'm, to be quite honest, I'm not real familiar with the binary code we're talking about. So one of the one of the witnesses reported that when they touched a, the UFO, they got this binary code downloaded into their brain. Oh, okay. Yeah, but okay, I yeah, know. Yeah, it's that that that. Yeah, that was. It's been a long. It's been a long time since since I I, I really looked into that case at all. Yeah, and I, I hadn't looked into it very very far to begin with. But once you said that, I was like, oh, okay, that okay. Now I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, sorry, sorry. They didn't do that. Or their original statements didn't mention anything about binary, and. They they mentioned that many years later on a television program. I think it was Unsolved Mysteries, but I might be wrong about that. But it, it just kind of stinks if, of something they invented. Yeah, well, and Unsolved Mysteries was that show was famous for fabricating things. You know, well, I, I'm not sure if they were or not, but somebody actually found. I'll go into more detail, but somebody actually proved that the binary code was actually just referencing. Um, specific map coordinates that was the supposed coordinates of what's high, what's called high Brazil. If you've heard of that. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So and this is what I'm talking about, dude, this whole, the whole thing, the whole, it's off the West coast of England, the whole bent waters thing, uh, Britain's Wa- Roswell th- thing. It, you could just go on and on and on it. There's so much stuff to mm-hmm. it's going to take multiple, well, just, just to, to, to explain real quick, I actually think that uh, High Brazil would probably be a, a cool uh, mind boggle, possibly. Uh, it Maybe even um, connecting in, talking about like the Piri Reese map. Uh, without going too far on a digression, yeah. um, people should know that High Brazil is a basically a sunken island off of the west coast of England. And um, it, it's something that was, it's a piece of land that was definitely above water during the Younger Dryas era, uh, the last ice age. Mm-hmm. And and so it's it's a piece of land that a lot of people are very interested about because they think it could be uh, what inspired the stories of um, Atlantis. Well, I mean, I think we could you know we mean? could probably do like a whole episode on on that kind of stuff. Probably, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could tie it in also to yeah different different out of out of place maps in history that that um, as far as when they were supposed to have been made, uh, the information that's on these maps shouldn't have been known. You know yeah. I mean? But well, anyways, so, long story short, the uh, the binary code is complete and utter yeah. BS. So just disregard it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it sounds it sounds sensational though, you know. Yeah, but well, that's that's the whole thing. But I remember I remember actually seeing that on a TV show at the time. This was many many years ago, and I was really interested in the UFO topic. But I was just so disgusted at this. Like I knew immediately when I saw it on this TV show, I'm like, dude, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. Like binary code, like aliens or whoever it is, they're going to use binary code. As we had mentioned earlier, there's multiple different types of radar and um, the the people who are manning these radars, they knew what they were doing. They they had a lot of experience. So uh, agent Anderson, would you mind expanding a little bit on that? Uh, Yeah, sure. One of the things that a lot of skeptics will say to dismiss this case is that they either saw like a radar mirage or like a temperature inversion or Mm -hmm. even possibly a radar return from the moon or, you know, just there's all kinds of (laughs) seemingly plausible explanations. 
But yeah. when you really analyze it, if if you have multiple radars that are all of different types of radars, so it's not the same model of radar, you have different types of mm-hmm. radars and they're all in different locations simultaneously tracking the object. Basically, um, without getting into all the really nitty gritty details, but you can pretty much rule out any sort of anomalous mirage or radar artifact or glitches in the system. Um, mm-hmm. when, when you get down to it, there was definitely a physical object responsible for these radar returns. It was not some sort of mistake or some sort of glitch or yeah. mirage. There's, I know I've heard the, the term um, anomalous propagation thrown around a lot when they're talking about this, right? Yeah, there, that's one of the one of the many possibilities that could cause something like this. But the the thing is, when you have something like that, it doesn't usually give a strong return for a long period of time. It might give a faint return here or there, and mm-hmm. when they like when they describe doing like a rectilinear pattern and like it starts and stops or whatever, if you cherry pick some information and say, well, it was just random dots that the radar operator interpreted as being, you know, a rectilinear pattern or whatever. But Mm. you really have to cherry pick that information in order to make it seem like it was some sort of mirage or false return. But when, Mm, when you look at the hard information and interpret the hard information, there's pretty much no possibility of it being a false return of any kind. It was definitely an object that they were getting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of how many different angles that they're able to observe it from, basically. Yeah, well, and just just the way that radars work. And yeah. the fact that these radar operators were highly trained, and they were very specialized. That's all they did was look at radars all day long. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they would know if they were getting a false return. They know what that looks like, and they know what a real airplane looks like. They know what a real return looks like. Yeah, yeah, they had enough experience of, of seeing that on a, uh, in a real world, uh, situation where they know what the heck they're looking at when they see something like that on the screen. Yeah, for sure. So I think now it's, uh, important to talk about the great Dr. Hynek. Oh yes. Oh, Dr. Hynek, my favorite. The, the, the great and legendary. The legendary Dr. Hynek. So uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. Hynek, he was the civilian scientific, um, adjunct researcher to Project Blue Book. And if you haven't heard about Project Blue Book, then uh, then then stop this <laughs> podcast and go freaking find out about that first, please. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a big one. It's in. We should probably do an episode on Blue Book eventually because oh it's, yes, absolutely, it's pretty significant. But basically, um, as you might expect, because Project Blue Book, their whole thing was basically to debunk stuff, not investigate it. Mm-hmm. But they had concluded that it was misidentified meteors. Now, Dr. Hynek had something to say about this. Um, keep in mind, this is, you know, well before he did his 180. This is what he has to say. It seems highly unlikely, for instance, that the Perseid meteors could have been the cause of the sightings, especially in view of the statement of observers that shooting stars were exceptionally numerous that evening, thus implying that they were able to distinguish the two phenomena. So another, what he's talking about there is a lot of the witnesses said that they, that there were a lot of meteors that night and they saw the meteors. And I I don't know if any of you have ever seen a shooting star, which I'm, you know, but 
it doesn't look like what the witnesses are describing here. You would know the difference. Yeah. 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 Anybody who has observed a shooting star, they, it's obvious what it is when you're looking at it, you know, it's, it's following one direct path. You know, it's, it's acting exactly how you, you've always heard and how it's always been described. You know, it's almost like a, I've always, I don't know. Cause I, I've living where I live, um, without going too far, but there's not a whole lot of po- uh, pollution. So the skies are pretty clear. You get to see a lot more mm-hmm. of the sky than you would if you were living in somewhere like any highly densely populated area. Let's just say Los Angeles, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of light pollution too. That's a, that's a big thing, mm-hmm. but it's hard to mistake a meteor for anything else but a meteor when you're looking at right. it streaking, streaking across the sky, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's pretty much all we have for this case. So why don't we wrap it up? Um, Agent ETA, any final thoughts? And my final thoughts, my opinion is that something was there, something was observed, and they weren't able to fully understand what that something was. I believe it was a UFO. I, I do believe it was something intelligent. And my reason for that is because of how erratic some of the patterns uh that you know these objects were following uh, some of the situations would suggest in my belief um intelligent maneuvers and nature and response to what you know these pilots were doing i think there's enough there for me at least to conclude that they were dealing with an intelligent and intelligently controlled object or craft yeah i i totally agree um it it's hard to make the jump to say that this was intelligently controlled to make the jump to like aliens, because there's actually, there is zero evidence that it was like aliens. But if you consider that we didn't have the technology to do that then, and we don't have the technology to do what these objects did still today. Mm-hmm. So it it's hard to say that it was anything terrestrial, you know? So mm-hmm. even though it's hard to say that it was aliens, uh, for me, this is one of the cases I think that is high up on the list. If if you're going to say, what cases do you think best support the idea that extraterrestrials have visited us? This is up there for me. This is one of the best cases ever. Again, it's still not enough to say that it was aliens, but I think it's one of the best cases to say that it was aliens, if, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. No, no, I agree. I'm willing to call it aliens, though. <laughs> Let's do it. It's aliens. I call. I'm calling it. <laughs> no, I didn't call it. Agent ETA called it. I'm calling it too. It's aliens. Yes, yes. You have brought, been brought into my side. <laughs> Come to the dark side. We have cookies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cookies and uh, and beer. Uh, beer's good. Whiskey's better. All right. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for a case that we haven't decided on yet.